Our scripture passage today comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Amelia. Thanks for sharing your story as well. I love stories of resurrection. I love hearing how God is at work uh, in our community and in our in our in our lives. So thank you for that. As we have uh, we've done it, we've reached the the grand concluding chapters of our semester long uh, journey and series through the Book of Revelation. We're here at Revelation twenty one and twenty two, which will take up the, the the last couple of weeks. And man, these, these are two of the most uh, beautiful and compelling and hopeful chapters in all of the Bible. I'm so thankful to get to spend uh, these last couple of weeks in these chapters. Because it's not only the end of Revelation, it's actually it's the end of the Bible as a whole. And it's a glimpse at the end toward which all of history is heading. It is the living hope that has sustained Christians in every age. Living hope comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, where, where uh, Peter writes that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead causes Christians to be born again to a living hope. And brothers and sisters, that living hope is the hidden power of a Christian's life. This is the hope that enables you to get through things in life that you didn't think would be possible otherwise. What is this living hope? It's, it's the precious words we just read in Revelation 21. It's the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. It's the hope of a, of a new creation, the new creation that began at the first Easter reaching its ultimate fulfillment. It's God making all things new. And if you remember, that is the purpose of the book of Revelation. It was not written so that Christians 2,000 years later could speculate about you know, crazy predictions and write really bad novels about it. That's not what it's about. It was written to first century churches who were suffering to give them living hope, living hope to get through it all, to give them a glimpse of the present reign of Christ in heaven and of the future glory of Christ that is to come, a future glory that is worth enduring and persevering for. Right, that makes sense. How did these early Christians get through what they went through? 
the loss of their rights and their freedoms, the loss of their jobs and their livelihoods because of their faith in Christ? How did they get through persecution and suffering and even the loss of life itself as eventually they were fed to the lions in Roman Colosseums? Brothers and sisters, it's because they had the living hope of Revelation 21. And so ask, how are you able to face things in your life you never thought you'd be able to face? Probably not gladiator arenas, but cancer diagnoses, the loss of loved ones, friends leaving, financial struggles or ruin, the disapproval of the world. How do you get through that? Only if you have the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the hope that is signified for us here in Revelation 21. Howard Thurman is an African-American scholar and educator. He gave a lecture in 1947 at Harvard Divinity School that is entitled, The Negro Spirituals Speaks of Life and Death. And his premise was about how the distinct hope of heaven that is contained in Negro spirituals allowed Christian slaves to get through some of the worst suffering in, in all of history. Listen to what Thurman says. What greater tribute could be paid to religious faith in general and to their religious faith in particular than this? It taught a people how to ride high to life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're after today. Hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, cannot crush. I want that, don't you? How is it possible? Friends, it is possible because God promises to make all things new. Only God can make anew. And that means two things that I want you to see in this text. All things new means the complete presence of God and the complete absence of sin. The complete presence of God and the complete absence of sin. Let's look at those two uh, together. First of all, the complete presence of God. The great poet T.S. Eliot, I put this little clip from his poem, Little Getting, in the front of your bulletin, because I love it. Eliot writes, we shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I love that because I think that perfectly captures what's happening as we arrive here at the end of the Bible. At the end of all of our exploring... At the end of all the twists and turns in the story of the Bible will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. You know what I mean? It's because Revelation 21 and 22 sound an awful like Genesis 1 and 2, don't they? Genesis describes the creation of heaven and earth. Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis, the great lights are created, the sun, the moon, and the stars. In Revelation, they're no longer needed because the glory of God is the light and the lamp is the lamb. You see, we have arrived where we started, and yet we know the place for the first time. Because whereas Genesis narrates the story of how paradise was lost, Revelation narrates the story of paradise restored after the final defeat of the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. 
If you remember, Genesis 3 ends with a sinful Adam and Eve being driven out of the special presence of God and an angel armed with flaming swords guarding access to the tree of life. And Revelation ends with the special presence of God coming down to us. And those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, having their rightful access to the tree of life, restored. Friends, this is all symbolism to highlight the central feature of the end of all things, and that is the complete presence of God. The best thing about Revelation 21 is loudly announced in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, as great as it is that there will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more tears, the greatest wonder of all is that God will be close enough to us to wipe the tears from our eyes. Nothing can compare to that. Everything else is a fringe benefit. It's wonderful, but not as wonderful as the presence of God himself. Everything else is a side dish. The main course is to dwell with God. And that's one way you could summarize the entire story of the Bible. That is God's desire to dwell with his people and our longing to dwell with him again. Friends, I believe with all my heart that that ache that we all feel to be home, to be in a place where you belong, to be in a place where you are fully known and you are fully loved is that deep longing to dwell with God. And you can take that longing to all any number of substitutes, to a friend, to a lover, to a church, and they can never fully satisfy it. We were created for more. We were made for God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And so the entire story of the Bible is the story of God making a way for us to dwell with him again. If you trace it through, after the tragedy in the garden, God gave us several prototypes, signs of what is to come. Remember, he dwelled with his people in the Exodus through a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Let, him, let, him, let them know, I am with you. He dwelled with his people in the wilderness through the tabernacle, this mobile tent that was the center of their worshiping life. He dwelled with his people in the promised land through the temple, this spectacular house where God promised to hear prayers and forgive sins. And all of this was preparing the way for the one to come who is greater than the temple. Jesus is the temple in a person. The one in whom God and man, heaven and earth, the visible and invisible meet together. Remember, our author John writes in his gospel, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as wonderful as that is, after Jesus' bodily ascension, God comes to dwell with us individually and communally in the church through the Holy Spirit, who is especially present in our gatherings, in the Word and in the sacraments. And yet the final act is to come, Revelation 21, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and a loud voice announces at long last, finally, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You remember in Genesis, there was no need for a temple because God dwelled directly with Adam and Eve. And in Revelation, again, there is no temple.
because God dwells directly with us again. Friends, do notice, I don't have time to go into these facts, but do notice that the final act of the Bible is about heaven coming down to earth and not us escaping the world to go live in heaven. This is the final and the ultimate answer to our prayer that we've prayed. We prayed today. We've been praying throughout all the years. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And do notice that the final act is physical, not just spiritual. It's a new heaven and a new earth that will be just as physical as the first earth. In fact, the word new means new but not other. It means that God does not trash the first heaven and the first earth, but he gloriously rejuvenates them and he makes them perfect again. Brothers and sisters, the hope of Christians is that we will live in new resurrected bodies in a new resurrected earth. But again, my main point is that the greatest thing of all is the complete presence of God. Genesis, the fall, has been redeemed and we will dwell with God again. We will be his people he will be with us as our God. An old Puritan theologian once postulated this. It seems silly, but, but actually I think it's quite profound. He wrote, if you got to heaven and you found that God was not there, would you want to stay? In other words, if you could have all the benefits of heaven, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, but you didn't have God himself, would that be enough for you? It's a great question because it gets to the heart of the issue. Are you in this for God's benefits or for God himself? One of the most famous stories in the Bible is about two sons, both of whom in different ways show that they are really only interested in the father's stuff, but not the father himself. It's a story of the quote-unquote prodigal son in Luke 15. If you remember, the younger brother takes his share of the inheritance, and he takes off for the far country to live a hedonistic life. And the older brother dutifully stays home, and he does everything that's expected of him in order to get his share of the inheritance. One is religious, one is irreligious, but they are both lost because they both share the same condition. They want their father's blessings, but not the father himself. Brothers and sisters, the best way that you can prepare for the new heavens and the earth now is to live ultimately for God, not just for his benefits. Not just for God to give you good health and a good job and a good family and a meaningful life. Not just living for God's stuff, but for God himself because he is the real treasure. Friends, what greater encouragement could there be for the struggling church on earth? At the end of all this, you get the deepest longing of your heart that will be like drinking from the spring of the water of life to dwell again with God, your creator, your redeemer, your sustainer, whose hidden hand has been behind every moment of your life. But maybe at times it's felt distant or absent, but friends, no more. You are finally home. All things new means the complete presence of God. And secondly, it means the complete absence of sin. As I've said, the complete presence of God is the main feature, but this secondary feature is pretty great too, isn't it? All things new means the complete absence of sins. 
It must mean this because sin is the agent responsible for every ounce of suffering in this world. For heaven and earth to be new, one commentator says, every stain of sin, every scar of wrong, every trace of death must be removed. Friends, can you imagine such a world? It's what every human attempt a utopia dreams of. It's what every cancer researcher dreams of. It's what every equal justice initiative wishes were true. It's what every fighter of human trafficking is longing for. It's what every educational program aspires to. But only God can make new. One commentator I read this week notes how the city of Jerusalem in chapter 21 is to be contrasted with the city of Babylon in chapter 18. Babylon, which is the representative city of man, is called great. But Jerusalem, the representative city of God, is called new. Babylon can be great, but Jerusalem is new. We can do great things in the city of man, but we cannot remove sin from the world. Only God can make new. Only God can make a world with a complete absence of sin. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As the very things that the original readers, the original audience were bitterly acquainted with. The very things that we are bitterly acquainted with, mourning, crying, pain, and death will be but a distant memory. They passed away. It used to be we who passed away, but now it is they who have passed away. And God says in verse 5, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. The church needs to hear this and to take it to heart and have hope. One day, one day, no more tears because there's no more sin. When God says, I am making all things new, he means all things. And everything in Revelation 21 and 22 is completely new. It's a favorite word. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new Jerusalem, the new city of God. I find this really fascinating. We have moved from the garden of Genesis to the city of Revelation. The Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. I think this had to be really profound for the original churches. Remember those letters uh, to the churches back in uh, chapters 2 and 3 that we preached on? They were addressed to churches where? In cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Cities that these Christians probably thought could never be redeemed. Surely they were thinking, in the end, we'll just flee away from these wicked cities. We'll go back to the wilderness. We'll go back to the garden. But God says, nope. We are heading towards a city like you could never imagine. Fully redeemed. A city, uh, fully what a city is supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, that means God is not abandoning the cities of the earth. He is redeeming them. Everything's new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and a new people. The church represented it as a bride coming down, adorned for her husband. Again, it has to be incredibly profound for the early churches. Contrast this image with the images we had in chapters 2 and 3. There, the church was very much imperfect. She was dressed in soiled garments, 
of her sin. But now the church is perfect. Dressed in the radiant righteousness of Christ, the church is finally what she was created to be. Friends, can you imagine such a world? The old Christian band Mercy Me tried to imagine it back in the 90s. I know some of you are singing it. I can only imagine. John Lennon tried to imagine it years before that. A very different take. His vision tried to get there without God. Remember, imagine there's no heaven, no hell, no religion, and the world will somehow be as one. But friends, you cannot get there unless someone deals with sin. You cannot get there unless someone deals with sin. There is no peace while sin is present. And the only one who has dealt with sin is God. If you know the story, how God dealt with sin was by sending his own son, Jesus. And when he was conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit, an angel showed up and he said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was the mission. Save us from our sins. And he saved us by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. And what that means, friends, if you have put your trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that means that Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. It's what we call justification. And Jesus is saving you from the power of sin. It's what we call sanctification. And one day, he will save you from the very presence of sin itself. It's what we call glorification. It's pictured for us so wonderfully here in Revelation 21. You see, Jesus first takes the sin out of us, and then he takes it out of the world altogether. Again, can you imagine this? When there's not only no more sin in the world, but there's actually no more sin in you whatsoever. Can you imagine when you will no longer want to sin? When sin won't even be an option. Let me ask you, have you ever gotten so frustrated with yourself because you don't understand your own actions? You don't do the things you want to do. You do the things you don't want to do. You do the very thing you hate. Have you ever gotten so weary of running from the love of God and ending up in the same empty places? Have you ever cried out with the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Brothers and sisters, the answer to this cry of despair is in the very next line. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because one day you will be unable to sin. You will perfectly love God and neighbor, just as you were created to do. The best part is, friends, it will be permanent. It will be eternal. There will be no chance of falling again. That's what that bit means in verse 1 about the sea being no more. Again, this is symbolism, but in the Bible, the sea always represents the forces of chaos, of unrest, of conflict, that are characteristic of life in a fallen world. If you remember back in Revelation 13, the sea is where that one beast emerged from, remember? But friends, in the new heavens and the new earth, symbolically, there will be no more sea, no more monsters, no more serpent, no more tempters, 
you will never lose this paradise. God says it in verse 6. It is done. It's done. It's over. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal, he once wrote what I would consider his vice to us about evangelism, about sharing the Christian faith. Pascal wrote, make religion attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show that it is. Worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. Attractive because it promises true good. Here it is. Make people wish it were true and then show that it is. So I ask you, I ask anyone listening to this, don't you wish this were true? We all do. A new heaven, a new earth, the complete presence of God for whom we were made, the complete absence of sin that ruined everything, all things new. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you it is true. It's true in Christ and in Christ alone. The best thing is it's absolutely free. Verse 6, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The price of admission has been completely paid by Christ. All you have to do is to put your hope in him. Have you all seen that um, delayed gratification marshmallow experiment? <laughs> I love it. There's various versions of it, but the gist of, this, uh, gist of it is this. You sit a kid down in a room with a giant fluffy marshmallow in front of him, and you tell him, in 15 minutes, I will give you another marshmallow. So you'll get two if... You can wait 15 minutes and not eat this one in front of you in the meantime. And then the researcher leaves the room and the cameras catch the kids struggling, struggling to wait for the better thing that's been promised. Brothers and sisters, that's what Revelation 21 is for the church. This is the best thing that's ever been promised. The complete presence of God, the complete absence of sin, if... We can wait for it. It will require delayed gratification from us. So let us not grasp for lesser loves. Let us not settle for substitute saviors. Let's hold out for the real thing. This is worth every bit of patient endurance and perseverance. It will be worth waiting for and receiving because, as the scriptures say, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, thank you for this word and we ask for your help uh, to do what uh, we struggle to do. Lord, because you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have taken the sting of sin. You have taken death upon yourself, Lord Jesus Christ, so that it has stung you so that it will never sting us ultimately. And Lord, you are at work. You have boldly proclaimed to us that you are making all things new. Lord, we wish it were true. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lead us to put all of our hope and our trust in you and fill us with a living hope that can get through anything this world throws at us. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.